Hello science lover. Happy New Year. I hope you had a great break. Welcome to Cyber Chat, a podcast where we explain science puzzles in a way that everybody understands. This podcast is brought to you by Stam Duradu. Stam Duradu is owned by scientists and run by scientists. The goal of Stam Duradu is to make learning fun and interesting for kids. The games and exercises on Stam Duradu are fun and help kids study math and science at the same time. I'm your host Dr. Bishwajit Puddar and today we are delving into the fascinating world of autophagy with our special guest Dr. George Chidoja, a scientist in molecular biophysics and autophagy. He got his PhD in molecular biophysics with focus in structural biology. Welcome George. Can you explain a bit about biophysics and structural biology for our audience please? Um so first of all thank you for for inviting me to talk about my work and uh to talk about science in general. Um so biophysics is uh is a contraction of uh biology and physics. So it's the application of uh physical techniques and physical principles to biological systems. So the different way of putting it is um when it comes to the sciences the divisions that we have between the different subjects are there to allow us to be able to um to treat uh, the world in different ways. But these these divisions are divisions that we create. So there are actually no true separations between biology and physics. Right. And in biophysics we we combine the two in a sense. Oh. Thank you for planning for my audience. So No problem. Uh just could you tell us about your journey into molecular biophysics and autophagy and what is your inspiration uh to to focus on this research? So why you are interested on that? So can you tell me uh, a bit more? Um sure so so my journey um starts uh, in Zimbabwe uh where I was born uh, and raised and I did um so I've always had an interest in science uh, in general and uh I decided at the end of high school that I was going to study uh molecular biology uh, in 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 university and the reason for that was I wanted to do something that was um interesting to me but also had a social value and uh what i had in mind was um learning how to modify uh crops to make them drought resistant because that's important to an economy wow, like Zimbabwe. Wow, interesting. So in order to do that sort of thing you need to understand molecular biology. Now what i learned uh during the course of studying molecular biology was that um so this may be familiar to to some of your listeners uh but all biological organisms have mm-hmm. a a blueprint right. or a set of instructions from which uh they can be constructed um that's usually contained in DNA and molecular biology is the study of how the information contained in DNA is then converted into uh what we see in the organism so uh why is it that um you know some people have uh dark uh curly hair and some people have straight blonde hair the process where that um w- the process in which we go from the information in DNA to the physical traits is one molecular biology studies now during the course of that study i realized 
that a major limitation of our understanding of molecular biology mm-hmm. was the relationship between DNA and protein structure. Right, absolutely. Now, the so uh, you asked me at the beginning what structural biology is. And yeah, it, it relates to that question. Um, so if you if you uh, I'm going to ask you a so, quick question. Yeah. Uh, what like what would you say is the difference between a fork and a knife? Okay, so you um, use knife to cut meat and and you use a pork to hold it, right? Okay, so they have uh, they have different functions, but both yeah. of them can be made of the same material. Yeah, but right? it, they work both together, right? They, so they work together. They yeah. can both they are uh, can both be made of the same material. Mm-hmm. But what is it that makes the function of the knife different to the function of the fork? So it's not the material. Mm-hmm. There must be something else, right? Which is uh, the 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 knife has a sharp edge, whereas the fork has prongs in it. Oh. So it's so to put it generally, mm-hmm. it's the shape of the material that right. determines the different functions of the fork and the knife. Right. And shape it, we can also call structure. Mm-hmm. Now proteins, in a similar way, can be made of the same same material. Right. But when they ad- but uh, because they adopt different shapes, they have different functions. So the proteins uh, that allow you to see in mm-hmm. in the retina of your eye. Uh, are made of the same material that makes up the proteins uh, that make up your hair, for example. Right. But they have different functions because they have different shapes. And my job, as you can imagine, it's difficult to see the shape of proteins. Proteins are very, very small. Yeah. So we're look at, we're talking about um, scales round about um, tens of uh, billionths of uh, of a meter. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like very, very small. So so okay. Uh, if you bring the discussion <laughs> that we cannot see. Uh, yeah. The protein structure in naked eye. So, how do you see uh, uh, the protein in, in in the laboratory? So, can you tell uh, to our audience the how do you see the protein? You know, as I'm also a scientist, so uh, oftenly my non-scientist friend ask me, "Oh, protein is small, or DNA is small, and gene is small. So, how do you see them? Uh, so, what kind of technique do you use uh, to see the proteins in the laboratory?" That's a, that's a very good question. And so with most small things, uh, we can see them by using uh, some kind of magnification. So for small, small organisms, creatures, you can see maybe with a magnifying glass. If you're looking at cells, uh, hopefully so, uh, members of our audience have had an opportunity to use something like a light microscope where you can put, you know, maybe a bit of onion or uh, brush off uh, some, some pollen from a flower. Mm-hmm. And which by eye you can't see, but using the microscope you can right. see. And in the same way, uh, you can we use a different kind of microscope, uh, the electron microscope, to visualize uh, some of these small uh, molecular um, structures. So, what what is electron microscope? What is the difference between normal microscope we uh, often see, and then what electron microscope you used in your uh, research? Can you explain a bit uh, um, how they are differentiated? Uh, yeah, so uh, so hopefully uh, in what I've just previously said, um, uh, your audience can appreciate that microscopy is microscopy. The difference is one is uh, light microscopy. That's what we're used to. And what that means is we're using light in order, in order to see 
the objects that we want to look at. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the electron microscope, we're using electrons. So electrons are uh, uh, constituents of atoms, so small particles, right? Uh, which we can use to see uh, small molecules. Right. Okay. Um, so thank you so much for your explanations about biophysics, structural biology, and two different kind of microscope. So my next question: Why you are interested in biophysics in your in your PhD in Liverpool? Yeah. So what is your project was there actually? And then afterwards you moved to Francis Crick Institute, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, as a postdoc. So what is your motivation uh, to move to Francis Crick Institute and working on autophagy? So can you explain a bit? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, so like I mentioned, I was I was interested in. Um, basically modifying the genetic material of, of organisms. Mm. And how that's related to proteins is that genes contain instructions that make proteins. And I realized that even though we knew what the genes were, or it was easy to work out what the genes were, it was difficult to know what the shapes of the proteins were. Yeah. Because remember, again, the shape is what determines the function in the same way uh, determines uh, f- distinguishes a fork from a knife. Right. Um, so when I realized that that was a, a major gap in our in our understanding uh, in science, I decided I would pursue my PhD in techniques for understanding that um, electron microscopy mm-hmm. uh, being the main technique, um, a, a particular flavor of, of electron microscopy uh, called cryo electron microscopy. So the cryo just means. Um, were working at very cold temperatures. So this is liquid nitrogen temperatures. Why is it important that that, um, uh, low temperature, uh, so can you explain a bit why is uh, cryo temperature is needed? Yeah, sure. Um, So so when we say very low temperatures, just to give you an idea, uh, in most rooms uh, in, in, uh, let's say here in the UK, the temperature is between uh, 20 to 22 degrees Celsius. Uh, liquid nitrogen. Okay, depends on like which weather. Oh, of I... course, <laughs> <laughs> true. <laughs> um, so, but roughly that's what we would consider room temperature. Right, right I'm just kidding. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, just to give you an idea, and so liquid nitrogen temperature is minus uh, 165, so it's uh, quite cold. So, why do we work at these temperatures? So, electrons are. Uh, if if we were to release an electron in the air, it would quickly uh, be absorbed by the air. So we couldn't use it for forming images. Mm-hmm. In the same way, if I were to put um, an, an opaque piece of paper, or a piece of, um, well, any piece of paper in front of uh, the light source of a light microscope, yeah. I wouldn't be able to see an image. So for electron microscopy, we work in a vacuum. So we remove all the air molecules mm. inside the instrument, and the electrons can then pass freely. However, uh, there's a phrase... Um, which my, my chemistry teacher always mm. like to use that uh, nature abhors nature abhors uh, a vacuum, and essentially what that means is if you create a vacuum mm-hmm. by removing all the air molecules, what happens is um, something will try and take the place of that vacuum. Right. And in our case, we're putting uh, a sample, the thing we want to image, mm. into the microscope. So if we're not careful, that thing can. Uh, basically be destroyed by the vacuum right but if we work at cold temperatures that doesn't happen that's one of the reasons uh among many others but uh we won't get get into the other reasons now right um 
So basically, so our next discussion, as I mentioned, that like most of the audience are interested uh, about probably autophagy because uh, in a in a social media, there's a lot of people discussing about the intermediate fastings, and then they they know the science behind that, uh, like autophagy, and even someone got Nobel Prize for autophagy research. And over the last decade, a lot of um, uh, advancement happening uh, in autophagy research. So. Can you explain uh, what is autophagy and why it is essential for our um, body or our health? Uh, yeah, th- thanks for that question, uh, uh, Dr. Potter. Um, so, um, essentially, with the, with the technique I've been describing, you can work on a variety of, of uh, questions. And right. one of the questions that I ended up working on was, uh, was autophagy. And like you've mentioned, it's quite it's quite a topical uh, topical subject. So what so what is autophagy? Uh, so the word comes from uh, two terms: uh, uh, auto meaning self, mm-hmm. and phagy meaning to eat. So uh, essentially, if you put together that uh, that expanded version of the word, it means to eat oneself. So you mean that uh, in our body is happening that like. Um, that our cells were engulfed by another cells, or what do you mean by eating? Can you explain a bit more? Yeah, yeah, yes. uh, and that, that's a key question because there is a process where cells eat other cells, but that's called uh, phagocytosis. Yeah, so most of my non-scientist friends, they know about it, so they ask me that, that questions, but yeah. yeah. So, uh, uh, however, this is a uh, this is different to uh, to phagocytosis. This is happening inside a single cell. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, uh, we think that this process happens in all the cells in your body. Uh, you have um, for- formation of a small small uh, bit of membrane. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is membrane actually? So it's um, somewhat straightforward. So we've most of us have seen something that mm. looks like a membrane. So try uh, putting a bit of oil on uh, on water. Yeah, uh, the oil separates from the water. Now membranes are composed of uh, uh, lipids, the yeah. same things that make up oil. Yeah, and because uh, because lipids like don't like water and they separate from water, mm. the boundaries of our cells and the boundaries of the small factories uh, that we call organelles. So these are Things like the mitochondria, for example, which the audience might know, that provide energy to all, all to the our cells. Body. Yeah. yeah. So all so all of these are bounded or contained within these fatty molecules, and these fatty molecules, because they don't like water, they form uh, boundaries or right. membranes, as as we refer refer to them. Um, so going back to the explanation of what autophagy is. Um, so essentially, in each cell, or for the sake of simplicity, imagine in a single cell, you have a formation of such a membrane where there was none before, and that membrane uh, then encloses or captures mm-hmm. something inside the cell, and then it delivers it to another one of these little uh, factories uh, inside the cell, uh, the, one of these organelles called mm-hmm. the lysosome. Yeah. And the lysosome contains uh, enzymes, which are proteins, whose function it is to uh, break apart uh, the different components that make up cells. So cells are made up of these fatty molecules, like I've mentioned, lipids. Uh, they're made up of uh, DNA, which I've already mentioned, mm-hmm. and that can be broken up into uh, what are called nucleic acids. 
you also have uh, proteins themselves, which which can be broken up into amino acids. And essentially, the process of autophagy Mm -hmm. is going from that encapsulation of uh, material and its delivery to this lysosome organelle for degradation. Right. So it happens all the time in your body continuously. And why it is important if it happens all the time in your body? So at a very limited level, uh, it it is happening uh, all the time. Uh, So you can imagine the cell, uh, the structures in the cell can become damaged, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they need to be removed. Uh, But the cell is very clever. It recycles uh, the material. So let's say mitochondria have become damaged. They need to be removed. Uh, The cell encapsulates it Mm -hmm. inside this membrane, the the autophagosome, as we call it. Delivers that mitochondria to the lysosome. And then the the lipids that make it up, the nucleic acids and the amino acids, are then released. Now, what the cell can then do is it can make new uh, mitochondria, for example, Mm. or new structures even. Um, uh, And this is particularly relevant in situations where where autophagy is induced. So what do we mean by induced? And this goes back to your question about... um, you know, uh, conversations around intermittent fasting Fasting, and so on. So in in conditions of stress, uh, like um, situations where you're fasting, Mm -hmm. uh, the cells no longer have um, access to materials that they need to build themselves or to make these structures. Mm. And what they do in response is they can break down existing structures and then use uh, the raw materials, the amino acids, nucleic acids, lipids, to create new structures that allow them to respond to the new st- to whatever stress it is. Mm-hmm. So nutrient starvation is a common stress that we look at, but there can be other stresses. Uh, for example, you can have, um, uh, for example, if a cell is infected by another, by a bacteria or by a virus, uh, the cell can use this mechanism. Uh, essentially to remove these bacteria or these uh, viruses and uh, by uh, and in this process uh, the raw materials released uh, can be used to make things like antibodies for example which uh, cells can use to to respond to uh, to the invading uh, virus or or bacteria Um, so uh, going back to intermittent fasting and autophagy so obviously if you Fast, uh, nutrient starvation or fasting induces autophagy. And uh, interestingly, auto- uh, autophagy has been linked to lifespan extension. So people tend to, at, at least in at least in worms. Um, okay, so what do you mean? So it's very sci- interesting. So, so as scientists, uh, you can imagine we don't always do experiments on people. We can't starve people on purpose. Actually, we don't do experiments. Uh, we don't do experiment on human body initially, right? Uh, yeah, we, yeah all, we, we always start with um, simpler mo- model systems, as we call them. Simpler systems, non-living or animal models right. where appropriate. Okay, back to your um, interesting like point, worms. What is that? Yeah, yeah. So, in, uh, so with it's intermittent fasting, uh, there are several benefits that come with it. So one of them is uh, improved um, regulation of insulin signaling, for example. Uh, so that can help like with kind of uh, avoiding uh, diabetes you have uh, cognitive effects that means you have um, effects on on the mind itself 
So it's been shown that when you, um, and by the way, intermittent fasting means um, you go for maybe 16 to 18 hours um, so, between, yeah, between it, meals. Yeah, because uh, intermittent fasting, the idea is to starve your body for certain period so the ideally it considered like 12 hours to 20 hours so you can starve all the time and then you can eat um, uh, any kind of food for like few few hours or several hours so there's a research they found that like uh, mostly 16 hours is the ideal for intermittent fastings and they have seen the bad that like best outcome of intermittent fasting yeah yeah so yeah so um yeah so some of the reasons to do it like i mentioned better better um insulin signaling which helps with controlling sugar levels in your in your blood uh cognitive benefits as well so you have um so it's been shown that when you fast intermittently there's a, a, a hormone or signaling molecule that's released in your brain uh that um controls the the growth of neurons for example um so there are many uh, benefits to intermittent fasting one of them being that it induces autophagy which allows for clearing of damaged or uh, damaged structures in your in your cells and also uh, could potentially help with weight loss so what you mean and as i understand that like um intermittent fasting is um a scientifically proven method isn't it I think there have been uh, trials in humans, at least for intermittent fasting. Right. Okay, cool. So let's say like, um, as I understand that autophagy is totally required for our body homeostasis, right? To maintain our normal body conditions, Mm. uh, right? So what happened? Let's say like somehow uh, the process is disrupted and if it happens, so what could be the consequence for our body? Um, yeah, uh, very good question. Um, and this is, I must say, this is an area of um, active study. Uh, but there is, there is some uh, thinking that um, if you have impaired or reduced autophagy, uh, this can lead to things uh, like neurodegenerative diseases. Uh, it can also lead to uh, situations where, so, for, so I already mentioned the clearance of mitochondria. So when mitochondria become damaged, uh, sometimes they can reduce the they can produce these um, uh, reactive oxygen species. So these are just um, uh, derivatives of oxygen that have the potential to damage other structures within the cell, and this can uh, this can lead to damage of DNA, which can uh, contribute to the development of cancer. Uh, this can lead to damage of uh, other structures in the cell, which can uh, which we think might um, accelerate the aging process. Um, in terms of uh, neurodegenerative disease, so a lot of these diseases involve um, accumulation of these um, essentially clumps of, uh, of protein. And by neurodegenerative disease, we're, we're think- talking about things like Alzheimer's uh, disease, Parkinson's disease. And autophagy is thought to be involved in uh, the clearance of... Um, the early um, early forms of these clumps. Yeah. So uh, basically, uh, as you mentioned, that like autophagy had a lot of uh, implications on uh, neurodegenerative diseases. So, do you know? Do you have any update, or do you know that any any kind of like breakthrough research is ongoing on uh, to treat those kind of neurodegenerative diseases? Um, I I wouldn't say breakthrough. 
um, but there is because we have this understanding there are um, companies that have that are looking into uh, developing small molecules yeah. um, essentially drugs that you can take in in the form of pills yeah. that would stimulate uh, autophagy uh, as you know that when I was working also Francis Crick Institute with you in the same lab mm-hmm. so I also work on um, to uh, find out uh, new molecules um, uh, like we, we st- used to focus on uh, autophagy so uh, mm-hmm. al- so do you think that this kind of um, research also ongoing on degenerative diseases to find out new molecules to treat um, uh, like Alzheimer disease or Parkinson disease uh, yeah so I know I know at least um at least one company uh, but uh, I think I, so I, better not to mention the yeah, name I won't, yeah I won't mention uh, any names but I know at least one company that's working on uh, finding uh, molecules that uh, increase autophagy okay but there are situations where maybe autophagy maybe uh, you might want to reduce autophagy right yeah so uh, this is in the context of things like cancer hmm. so sometimes cancers uh, can exploit autophagy Uh, to divert uh, nutrients into their uncontrolled growth. Mm. So in that case, you might want to inhibit autophagy, and that's uh, the scenario we were we were uh, looking at in our um, well more in your in your research than mine. But but your research was based on um, uh, on some work that I'd done uh, on proteins involved in the process. Yeah, adenine nine and two uh, A. Yeah, yeah, to be and and the idea was so. Uh, what we discovered was that these, uh, um, like Dr. Potter mentioned earlier, uh, proteins can work, even though they may have different shapes and different functions, they often have to work together. And these two proteins, uh, uh, I managed to show um, uh, with others uh, that they these two proteins need to work together yeah. closely. I think we will discuss more about in our uh, next episode about uh, your yeah, into sure. research. We'll, yeah, we will go into so that. probably yeah. our audience will be more interested to d- deep dive into your research. Uh, so yeah. let's keep in the for le- next episode. Um, so basically, there's a lot of research on going on autophagy nowadays. So what do you think in the next ten years how the field will be evolve uh, in autophagy? fields do you have any kind of now which um, direction the research will be uh, happening or yeah um so there's there's different different levels um where research is taking place so there is uh, the basic what we call basic research or basic science and the purpose of basic research or science is to understand uh, simply to understand how things are working in normal healthy conditions and how things are uh, not working uh, in disease. And within that area, there's still a lot to understand. Mm. Uh, we don't know exact, we don't know all the details of how um, autophagosomes form. Mm-hmm. There is some evidence that different cells uh, or different uh, organs in your body, uh, the liver, the heart, muscles, they might be carrying out autophagy in slightly different ways. Right. So uh, there the, the should be, uh, hopefully within the next 10 years, there'll be progress made in understanding how autophagy is happening uh, in more detail generally mm-hmm. and in more detail in a, a organ or tissue-specific uh, context. And um, as often as the case in biology, there may be sex differences as well. Um, so essentially, it's understanding what's happening in autophagy generally. So in basic research, 
the other the other line of research is um uh, translational or uh, applied research right and we've already we've already touched on some of the um some of the directions that this is heading toward and this can be generally divided into um sort of finding ways of controlling autophagy in a way uh, so as to increase it mm-hmm. which might be desirable in conditions like neuro- uh, early neurodegenerative disease or looking at ways of uh, reducing or um, inhibiting autophagy, which might be useful in, in conditions um, like cancer. So, I mean, it's uh, it's very difficult to predict the future, but based on my on my knowledge and experience, I, those are the, um, the right. areas that I see okay. that I see research going. So, in the next episode, we will talk more about George's work on autophagy. He is going to talk about autophagy proteins called ATG 9A, 9B and ATG 2A. We will delve deeper into the topic in our next episode. To our listeners, thank you for joining me on CyperChat. Let's know science together. Until next time, stay curious, stay inspired, stay tuned for more exciting conversation right here on your favorite CyperChat. Take care. Bye-bye.